0: What do you think of when I say the 1990s? Grunge music? Friends? We all remember that. But what you might not remember is that 61 million people were using pagers and smartphones didn't exist. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and on my new podcast, History of the 90s, we go inside the stories that defined a decade. From 90210 to the Long Island Lolita. Listen for free to History of the 90s on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.
1: Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Thursday, January 9th. We begin with an update on the tragic plane crash of the Ukrainian airliner in Iran. We get the latest details from Redmond Shannon, Global News Europe correspondent.
0: Next, we get a debrief on U.S. President Donald Trump's press conference from Wednesday in response to the Iranian missile attack. We speak with Larry Haas, senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council.
1: Then we hear how Canadian firefighters are lending a hand to battle the deadly wildfires in Australia. We get the scoop on how many brave men and women have made the trip to pitch
0: And finally, news stories can be scary to kids at times, especially these days. So we speak with a psychiatrist on the best approach to start the conversation with your children. An Iranian report this morning says, says the crew of a Ukrainian jetliner that crashed and killed 176 people never made a call for help. It says the plane was starting to turn back to Tehran when it went down. The report saying eyewitnesses saw the plane engulfed in flames before it crashed. We're getting the latest this morning from Global News Europe correspondent Redmond Shannon. Good morning, Redmond. Good morning, guys. Just a tragic situation. 31 Albertans believe dead in that plane crash. Is there any further news that's coming out over where you are that you're hearing that maybe we haven't uh, gotten hold of yet here?
2: Well, I think uh, a lot of what we're hearing um, today is focused on what's coming from Iran, and that is that the initial investigation shows not only that the uh, crew didn't call uh, an emergency call, a mayday call, but that they were the plane was diverting and trying to go back to the airport. So perhaps not surprising they didn't make an emergency call. They were perhaps more involved in navigating that plane back to the airport. They were, of course, uh, tragically unsuccessful in doing so. And uh, the Iranian authorities, in their initial investigation, are now saying that they believe that a, a uh, technical incident, a technical problem, was was uh, to blame, perhaps, and that the plane was on fire as it hit the ground, and that would match up with some eyewitness accounts and some cell phone footage purported to be showing the plane hitting the ground near tehran as well so those are the new things that we're learning today we're also uh, in the last few hours we've heard that a team of 45 investigators have arrived from ukraine and are now assisting iranian authorities on the ground at the crash site Uh, and are obviously looking to repatriate the bodies of, uh, at least, at the very least, the Ukrainian um, people on board. So that's the latest we have in the investigation. An initial assessment that this perhaps was a technical failure of some sort, but uh, the Ukrainian investigation team is, is, say, they're ruling nothing out, including perhaps a missile, Given what was going on in the region at the mm-hmm. time, they're not ruling out a bomb even and they're not ruling out a mid-air collision, but a lot is now being focused on perhaps an engine failure on this aircraft. And one thing worth noting is that these an aircraft normally, if one engine fails, they can safely fly on, one en- on the other engine, but perhaps if it was an engine explosion, well, that's a very different matter altogether.
1: Redmond, initial reports were that the Iranian government was not going to lend the black box to investigators to conclude their investigations. What are we hearing now about the black box?
2: Yeah, well, both black boxes, the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder are in the hands of Iranian authorities. They are not under any obligation to give them over to U.S. authorities. It's always the home country where the investigation is conducted and usually done so in conjunction with other authorities like the FAA in the States, like the Civil Aviation Authority in the U.K. and other aviation authorities around the world, along with plane manufacturers like Boeing, in this case, from the us So already the Iranian authorities have shared the details of their initial findings with the U.S. authorities, and uh, we will see over the coming uh, days and weeks what perhaps data is being found in the black boxes, but... um, it's not unusual for and it's not against any protocol for the uh, home country to not release the black boxes. They are in charge. It's their investigation. It happened on their soil. So uh, the fact that they have already initial, uh, released initial findings to uh, authorities in other countries shows that they are perhaps cooperating despite the political tensions in the region at the time.
0: Though in this case, I, I would imagine that there are a lot of people thinking that you know the information that uh, countries might get back supposedly from those black boxes may not be real or true.
2: Of course. So that, uh, you know, it needs to be transparent. And this was an issue in the MH17 crash in Ukraine. You'll remember in 2014 when that Malaysia Airlines jetliner uh, crashed and the findings initially in the investigations, uh, apart from the Russian investigation, uh, but all the other investigations show that it was shot down by a missile fired by Russian-backed rebels in eastern Ukraine. And there was a big show made of that black box eventually being handed over to authorities, to international authorities. So if we see that international authorities are getting to see that data, then we can be assured it's Mm -hmm. real. If we don't, then we'll be asking questions.
1: How long does an investigation into something like this usually take, Redmond?
2: Well, it can take uh, at least many months, at least six to eight months for um, interim investigations and can take a number of years for a full investigation. It often depends on how complicated it is. Sometimes it is a very new technical fault with an aircraft that uh, is stumping investigators. Quite quickly, they will get to focus on one area or another of the uh, either pilot error or be it terrorism or be it a technical incident. But uh, a final investigation, well, that could take, you know, it could take a year, it could take two years. But we'll have within perhaps the next four to six weeks a much greater sense of where investigators are looking And we'll have a much greater sense of how much investigators are cooperating.
0: Redmond, quickly, before we let you go, I'm just curious as to whether there was any statement from Donald Trump or the White House in regards to this plane crash, other than the usual, you know, our thoughts are with Canadians.
2: Yes, I've seen nothing uh, so far today, but I am sure, obviously, given that this is a U.S.-made plane, that uh, U.S. authorities are uh, going to be involved as much as they can. And uh, I think that, um, well statements that come out of the White House these days are are always unusual. But I think this tragedy uh, is immense. And uh, given that so many people are Canadian, I'm sure that the U.S. authorities will be um, working just as hard as ever to uh, to work with mm-hmm. Iranian authorities to get to the bottom of this. Yeah.
1: Well, thanks for your time this morning, Redmond. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Bye. Redmond Shannon is Global News Europe correspondent. Yesterday morning, U.S. President Donald Trump addressed the American people about the Iranian missile attack on U.S. military bases in Iraq, which took place on Tuesday night. With opinion on the President's press conference, we are joined by Larry Haas. Larry is Senior Fellow at American Foreign Policy Council. Good morning, Larry.
3: Nice to be here. Thank you.
1: What were your initial thoughts uh, watching the President's conference?
3: Well, a sense of relief for sure. I think that both the Iranians... In their, uh, in their attack on the base and their purposeful, in my opinion, uh, effort to not cause casualties, that is, to make more of a symbolic attack than anything else, and the president's response today to take that de-escalation signal and to not do anything to further escalate matters, um, I think uh, leaves us all with a feeling that the immediate uh, crisis Uh, is probably coming to an end Uh, doesn't mean that relations between the United States and Iran are going to get warm all of a sudden but the immediate crisis uh, I take this as coming to an end
0: I mean this is you know the the muscle flexing has been going on for what the past 18 months or so so I suspect you're right this is just the the next step right and then what do you feel will happen next as we look forward in this situation because as you said it's not going to go
3: away well I'll say this uh The muscle flexing has actually been going on probably for decades. Mm -hmm. Um, There have been flare ups on and off uh, terrorist groups attacking American interests that are sponsored by Iran. All the rest uh, threats on the on the seas with Iranian speedboats against U.S. warships. So this is even a longer story um, than you had suggested in terms of the future, uh, much like the past. Uh, Somewhat of a cold war that flares up from time to time between the two. Um, I see no indication whatsoever. In fact, quite the opposite, uh, that the president is going to back down. Uh, He wants a change in Iranian behavior an end to their sponsorship of terrorism, an end to their pursuit of nuclear weapons. I see no indication that Tehran is going to agree to those terms. So I think you're going to have more of the ongoing low-level conflict between these two countries that we've seen for quite a number of years.
1: Let's go back to his uh, speech uh, that was very interesting because he seemed to be on point with his script. However, and I know you've gone through this with a fine-tooth comb, on the way up to the podium, he uh, seemed to be speaking off-script about something about never having nuclear weapons. Can you break that down for us, what he was uh, referring to?
3: The um, the president uh, famously uh, backed the United States out of the Iran, the global nuclear agreement with Iran that had been orchestrated by President Obama. He thought that it was a weak agreement and that it would not prevent Iran from eventually either developing or acquiring nuclear weapons. And whatever you think of the president backing the United States out of that agreement, factually he's right about that because, at the very least, the agreement would have expired. Even if Iran stuck to it to the letter of the law, in the coming years it expires, and then Iran can do whatever it wants. Uh, The president uh, has said, as his predecessors vowed, uh, President Obama, the second President Bush, and even going beyond that, um, that Iran would never get the capacity – To develop or acquire nuclear weapons because it is the most aggressive state sponsor of terror in the world. And the idea of this regime having nuclear weapons is not something that the world would want to accept or contemplate. Now, um, in that sense, he is only repeating longstanding U.S. policy. Uh, But I think he wanted to you know, for his base or you know, any other reason, he wanted to send a signal that he is not, even though this crisis has been de escalated, that he's not backing away from that pledge to not allow the Iranians to uh, develop or acquire nuclear weapons.
0: Larry, what happens next? Because as you said, this is, you know, that the tensions have heightened recently, but this has been going on for decades. So what happens next?
3: Uh, look, I don't think there is a logical big next step, other than the president having announced yesterday that he's going to oppose, impose additional economic sanctions. I don't expect to see much in that area, frankly, because uh, the sanctions that are already in place are really quite sweeping and biting, and they're doing great damage to the Iranian economy. I think the real thing to look at is whether the Iranians feel the need to attack U.S. interests in the area in some way to keep this conflict going. Uh, they, you know, this is a revolutionary regime that wants to expand its influence far beyond its borders. Has great influence in Iraq, Syria, Yemen, uh, other places, and sees itself as you know the regional power and wants to force the United States out of the region. Do they resume their provocations on the seas against u s. warships? Do they uh, prompt their terrorist clients to attack u s. bases, u s soldiers, u s contractors in the region? Um, I don't know. the The President's decision to assassinate Soleimani, their top military official, uh, may deter them, may convince them to lay low for a while or it may inspire them to prove that they haven't lost any of their revolutionary ardor and that they, they need to show themselves to be what they've always been. Um, I don't know, but I think the next move is probably Iran's. Well,
1: thank you very much for your time this morning, Larry. We appreciate it.
3: Happy to be here. Thank you. Larry
1: Haas is a senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council. 709 on the morning news as the wildfires continue to devastate australia canada now have uh, sent five deployments of firefighters to help combat the blazes joining us to tell us about the men and women who are uh, spending their time to uh, pitch in is melanie morin an information officer from the canadian Integra- uh, integrated forest fire center for more details uh, melanie i want to ask you about this we say five deployments just how many firefighters does that uh, entail
4: good morning dave Um, It's a total of 95 uh, Canadian personnel that have been deployed to Australia so far.
0: 95. And how long will those firefighters stay there, Melanie? So
4: um, the standard deployments are around 38 days. Uh, again it can vary a little bit with traveling schedules but uh, yeah it it, it is a bit over a month Um, that's longer than it is when we travel within Canada when we exchange resources within Canada it's usually a 14-day deployment but because of the the distance and the time and the effort that it takes to get to Australia then we tend to do longer deployments.
1: Mm. And which uh, different cities or regions are the firefighters coming from in our nation?
4: So the first 87 that left were all deployed within the New South Wales uh, area, up and, along, up and down the coast, if you will, on different uh, areas where there were there fires. Uh, the last eight that left Monday night uh, were uh, deployed to uh, the state of Victoria. They landed in Melbourne and we will be working with Victoria Emergency.
0: How many are coming from Alberta or, or, uh, or across the country? You know, Where does the numbers break down?
4: We have a good representativity uh, coast-to-coast. Not every province was able to uh, supply personnel, but uh, within Alberta, Alberta has quite a a strong uh, contingent. There are 34 Albertans that have been deployed to Australia. Mm.
1: Now, how does it work? Because they're taken away from their posts in Canada. Are are they filled, or is this considered just a a leave of absence to a certain extent? Uh, Obviously, we want to make sure that we have enough resources in our cities uh, that are serviced by these firefighters.
4: Absolutely. So um, Canada, through CPSI, has an agreement with Australia that's been in place since 2015. So this mutual aid agreement allows them to send us a request for personnel, which we then take and turn around and to our member agencies, which are the provinces and territories, right? So in this case, Alberta Wildfire, and there's an equivalent in every, in every province. Um, then that agency will look to see what resources they have who is available what they can spare Um, and there are a lot of factors you know like one definitely the qualifications and and if what if we can meet what has been asked but then after that availability and and the length of time and what time of year it is luckily here in Canada we're still in the winter season uh, whereas in Australia they're definitely in their summer swing Um, but Australia, uh, Australia, Alberta was able to respond positively over the Christmas holiday period. Now, if uh, requests are ongoing, then the agencies will have to determine how many they can spare, knowing that the spring season may be upon us uh,
0: pretty soon. Melanie, you mentioned, like you know, in terms of experience, what the firefighters that are leaving, for example, from Alberta and heading to Australia, what kind of background or experience do they need to have to go in to battle something that just seems to be so horrific?
4: So all personnel that we've sent so far, um, they've been referred to as firefighters, but uh, firefighting personnel would be perhaps maybe a, a better description. None are frontline firefighters. None are the ones that actually have hose okay. in hand and, and are putting out the flames. What well, we have sent our incident management personnel. So. On every large-scale fire, uh, we have a, an incident management team that is there. Um, that you know, an incident commander, somebody that's working in operations, somebody that's working in logistics. It's all through the incident command system, which Canada uses and which Australia uses as well. So we've deemed that our operations are similar enough that we can, you know exchange resources and all 95 uh, personnel that we have sent are qualified in one position and maybe several positions within Mm -hmm. that system so we've sent people in operations and logistics in aviation in fire behavior analysis uh, many different roles that they can fill
1: how long are are, uh, these firefighters expected to stay down there how long is a tour if you will
4: 38 days uh the first group that left december 3rd uh is arriving this morning in uh, vancouver um they're back from their first 38 days but uh yeah the last group that left uh, january 6th uh, will be there till uh, mid-february
0: well it's uh, amazing to see our canadian fire officials stepping up and helping out where it's really needed so good on you for sending them down there and uh, let's hope they all come back safely for sure thanks for joining us melanie Thank you. Melanie Moran is the information officer for the Canadian Interagency Forest Fire Center.
1: Well, you know what? It's uh, devastating. And now we're getting more details about the uh, actual victims of the air crash, uh, the crash of the Ukrainian Mm -hmm. airline in Tehran. uh, 31 Albertans believed dead, and uh, including a couple of Calgarians. Heartbreaking, absolutely. And the impact will be felt deeply in our city, in fact, including uh, one of these uh, uh, victims, Arsha. ...are Bob Arami, a grade 12 student at Western Canada High School, Mm -hmm. an international student. He was returning to Canada after spending the holidays with his family in Iran... And uh, we've heard more and more that uh, you can get a, a good, uh, it was a good deal uh, to fly uh, through, uh, to get to Iran through the Ukraine. So that is Well, Hawaii and Canadians
0: had to make a stopover before they couldn't before fly they directly, through, right? Yeah.
1: So that's uh, why he was on the plane. He'd attended Western Canada for three years.
0: I dreamed of being a doctor. They say he was a leader in the community. Students looked up to him. The other Calgarian who was apparently killed in that crash was Kazra Sati, who was an aircraft mechanic, uh, formerly with Viking Air. He also based here in Calgary. It's, you know, it just breaks your heart because... The, you know the the community in Edmonton is a, a, it's the biggest community outside of their country yes. here in Canada and a lot of people saying why were there so many Canadians on that plane well the end of winter break for schools limited travel options between Iran and Canada all contributing to the number of Canadians who were on that flight so as we know all 176 on board were killed 63 Canadians you know in some cases entire families were wiped out it's just it's heartbreaking and so many brilliant minds. There of were course. doctors and scientists and young students who were, you know, doing so well and were expected to go on to do so many great things. It's it's a huge loss for Canada. Yeah,
1: we're hearing, you know, the impact going to be huge at the University of Alberta as well. And I'm sure uh, crisis counsellors are going to certainly be uh, available at Western Canada High, which also, you know what, the traumatic news stories like these, if uh, you have to talk to somebody during a, a time like this, and now's the time to reach out. Absolutely. It, uh, it can be devastating if you if you know somebody even in, in passing or even if you had uh, seen for example Arsha through the hallways of, of Western yeah. Canada High School.
0: It's just it's just so sad to me. You know, I in this disaster they say the largest recent loss of life among Canadians since an Air India flight that blew up uh 1985 that killed 268 Canadians. This is it's it's heartbreaking. It's a years ago, terrible yeah. terrible loss for not just us here in Alberta where we've lost so many of our people but right across the country and around the world.
1: Yeah, still looking for some answers, obviously. We'll yeah. continue our coverage on the morning news. Right-
0: 909 now. News by its nature can sometimes be kind of dark and disturbing and when big stories break, the coverage is everywhere these days. For example, the U.S.-Iran conflict or this week's plane crash. So if you're a parent, how do you help your kids understand what's happening but at the same time not scare them? Dr. Monique Jericho is with the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Calgary. She joins us now. Good morning, Doctor. Good morning. Thanks so much for being here because, you know, maybe you can give us some advice on the best way to start a conversation with 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 our kids about a serious news story.
5: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is a really pressing topic right now. And I think ever more so, Uh, we have so much uh, media in our lives right now. It's coming at us from a lot of different directions. And so, I mean, I think the first thing I would say, just to back it up a bit, would be, you know, exposure. So what are we exposing our kids to? It's important that we all think about this because, you know, screens are everywhere, but they don't always have to be on. And our kids don't have to be as exposed as perhaps they are, and particularly for younger children you know six and under in particular those kids really do not need to have these images and some of the some of the anger and some of the intense emotions that we see you know through news broadcasts and so forth they they don't need to be exposed to that Um, so being mindful of that as a parent I think is extremely important to start with Mm -hmm. Um, but to your question around you know how do you have those conversations I think it's really important to bear in mind that you got to be honest Right, but honest doesn't always mean giving every nitty gritty detail. The details, yeah, yeah. So keeping it simple, and you know, the younger the child, the simpler, right? Um, sometimes keeping things black and white for you know a young child can be really, really helpful because that's the terms in which they understand the world, right? So keeping things very simple, very clear, um, and also really remembering that you know. It's not really so much about the details that the child is hearing and understanding the situation, but it's about getting to what's going on for them in terms of their emotions. How are they feeling about this? So in those conversations, checking in with them, You know, how does this make you feel? And really validating that. Yeah, like sometimes things really can make you feel scared Mm -hmm. or upset. And, I mean, gosh, those things make us as adults feel scared and upset sometimes. And it's okay to say that, right? Um, But the big picture is, you know, we're here to Uh, safeguard our children, right? And providing reassurance is of utmost importance, right? So, you know, those events aren't happening here, and I'm going to keep you safe no matter what, Yeah, you know? And let's look at all the people out there who are working to solve these problems and help and people who want to find solutions, right? So there's lots of ways we can kind of go at it, but those are really critical pieces,
1: Let's talk about the setting and uh, and timing of a conversation like this. Uh, Do we do it when the evening news is on or do you want to do it away from... Any media so you can have that one-on-one or dinner table talk?
5: You know, I think you're you're really putting your finger on it there. So um, obviously this is uh, the type of conversation that you want to have where you've got a little bit of time and space because you do want to check in around how, uh, you know, how the young person might be feeling about things. And it's nice to have room to have an actual conversation about it. You know, as horrible as these events are, there are also real opportunities for us as parents to check in with, you know, how are our kids processing these things what are they thinking about this stuff sometimes you know when you talk about these big events our kids can really surprise us in terms of you know their thoughts and feelings and how sophisticated they can be so yeah dinner table talk is just fine what i would avoid is you know before bed yeah. <laughs> probably not the yeah. best time if we can avoid that because um, it can be a kind of a stimulating conversation but uh you know Checking in whenever you're seeing those light bulbs go on or if you're getting a spidey sense that your kid is a little worried or concerned about something, you know, that's the time like, hey, you know, what do you think about all of this? And,
0: you know, how is this making you feel? They're I mean, simple questions, but they're really powerful. And what are your friends saying? Because sometimes the kids yes. are talking, and they may not have the facts right, so, you know, making sure that they they know that the, what the truth actually is about situations, I think, is important.
5: Oh, I couldn't agree more, and I think, you know, this week was a great example. I think, you know, um, again, because of how uh, information spreads, um, you know, stories really, really seem to have gotten um, quite exaggerated. Even in this week, I think a lot of People were talking about notions of World War III before there was even clarity as to what was going on. I mean, that
0: was trending on social media, right,
5: which is what the kids are seeing. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, even when, you know, you're not necessarily kind of maybe not a family who's spending a lot of time watching the news, definitely, you know, by the time your kids are in elementary school, you know, they're, they're hearing this stuff. Um, You don't have as much control over what your kids are experiencing as soon as they're kind of out there in the world, right? So the checking in, in, the asking, the keeping it simple, but being available is really important. It's basic parenting stuff, but it's stuff that sometimes parents might shy away from because they might feel uh, it's a bit overwhelming or it's a bit too much. Some parents feel it's better to not talk about those things, and I would definitely disagree with that. It's really important to check in. Make sure they've got it straight. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: What about those times during heavy news headlines and you know that they've been exposed to it and your child turns introverted and doesn't really want to talk about it? Mm. Is there a technique or when do you say, you know what, we we better talk to a professional? Because Mm. sometimes they, they might turn it inside.
5: Yeah. And, you know, there are some kids who, um, for whatever reason, right, might be more inclined to just hold things inside. It may take longer for them to process things. I think what's really important is for your child to know that, you know, you're noticing this, Mm -hmm. um, that you appreciate they seem to be upset, that you're there for them, that you're happy to discuss it with them, and provide them kind of the reassurance regardless. You know, you can gently guess at what might be going on for them. You may not get it right, but you can gently guess and say, hey, you know, I'm here for you, you're safe, Um, and we can talk about this anytime. Now, if you have a child who seems to respond that way often, and intensely, and for whom you're kind of worried you never really get to have those conversations, things never seem to lift, that's, that's a situation in which I'd kind of maybe have a longer discussion, perhaps with your family doc or a pediatrician, just to make sure you're not missing anything else, mm.
0: you know? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Question for you, maybe this is kind of rose-colored glasses <laughs> stuff, but is it okay to sort of, you know, as a parent, be a realist and, and have the appropriate conversation, but remind your kids that, yeah, there are some bad people out there, but not everybody is bad, life is good, we live in a great country and that sort of thing.
5: Yeah, I mean I do think that honesty is incredibly important because again, these are teachable moments. They're not... They're not things that we need to always shy away from. You know, ultimately, we want our kids to grow up and be able to tolerate the world as it is. And the world as it is, is not always in our control and it's not always comfortable. But again, we have to titrate that based on our child and the age of our child. So, you know, using those terms, as you say, you know, know, um, there can be bad people, there can be... um, you know, people getting into fights. There can be people in disagreements, and sometimes this can lead to violence. And it's okay to use that language and use those words, um, so long as they're at the developmental age of your child. You know, once you have a teenager, you can get into things on a more sophisticated level, of course. Um, but I agree with you. You know, I think you need to kind of address these things because they are real and they mm-hmm. are happening.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning, mm-hmm. Dr. Jericho. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Dr. Monique Jericho is with the Department of Psychiatry, University of Calgary.